There we go. Thank you uh, to Elmer and... Um, fitting, too, uh, that we sing some older songs as we're talking about older stories and history. Um, so if you've been tracking with us at all over the past year, we're in this year of biblical literacy, and we've been sort of following uh, the biblical narrative, so the stories of Israel that lead us to now the stories of Jesus. And really, Jesus is the very center of the story. Uh, we've said early on about the Bible that we believe the Bible is inspired. It's God-breathed. It reveals who God is. And the Bible gives us an alternative story on, on how, to, how to understand the world and, and what God is doing in that world. But we also said that the Bible is a unified book that points to Jesus. And so here we are in this series now as we're unpacking the very center of the story. And one of the key ways that we learn about Jesus, of course, is through the gospel writers, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. And they are ancient histories. And uh, over the years, I guess, several years probably, I have um, from time to time looked up Mark. So Mark here, if you, many of you guys know Mark, probably vast majority of you. Mark's a, a historian, works at the University of Calgary as a historian. Um, and I've kind of, at times, took him out for lunch, and he's paid, which is kind of nice. Yay. Uh, so I got a free lunch out of the deal and really good conversation about history and how we read and think. And I just want to invite you into that conversation. So we're, we're going to talk about sort of history broadly, and we're going to slowly sort of narrow down to how do we read history specifically, as in the Gospels, right? Because this is a year of biblical literacy. Part of what we want to do is help you all read scripture better. Um, now, uh, one caveat, and then I'm going to invite Mark into this, but uh, the caveat's this. It's going to sound like, oh, we're going to talk about history and like, like abstract weird stuff, and it doesn't feel relevant to where you're living, right? You're trying to deal with sort of COVID restrictions and all of the stuff you've got on your plate. Uh, stick with me, okay? I'm going to invite you, really stick with us here, stick with us, uh, for the next 20, 25 minutes or so, um, this is far more relevant to where you live than you realize. So just ask you, stick with me, okay? All right, Mark. Is, is, this is on, I take it? Okay, good. It is, yeah. Uh, good to have you, man. Um, hey, so let me just jump right in. Uh, we've kind of scripted a few questions, so, but here's, this is the kind of conversations I love having with Mark. So um, hi historians, at least in my mind, have an agenda. That is, they're, they're trying to communicate something, right? They've got something they're trying to get across. So my question, my first question is, is there such a thing as objective history? Like, or does their agenda get in the way? Or are they just telling through an agenda? And is that a problem? Um, well, the, the first thing I want to say is that um, history as a study, as a discipline in our notion of the term, that is a, a, an account of the past that is neutral and impartial and as full and complete as the evidence allows, that notion of history is only about 200 years old. Um, hmm. Okay, um, and, and to get to your, your question, um, I think most historians today would say that, that an account like that is, is impossible. One that is complete and, com and completely entirely neutral and impartial. Uh, for one thing, 
the, the, the information that we have about the past um, is so vast that historians automatically make selections based on what they find important, based on what they're interested in. So some historians are interested in politics, others are interested in warfare, others are interested in, in thought and philosophy, or the structure of society, and it goes on and on. Okay, so naturally, that's the kind of evidence that, that they look for in the past. Okay, so often these criteria that historians use are, are conscious and deliberate. I'm interested in warfare, not me in particular, but some historians are interested in warfare. So that's the kind of stuff they look for. They're, they're not interested in, uh, in, in other kinds of, of questions. Um, often, however, these, um, the, the criteria for selection are, are unconscious. Historians, like all of us, are products of their time and place. So, for example, when we read historical works written in another era, okay, so imagine a, a history of ancient Rome written in 19th century Britain. Often that history of ancient Rome tells us as much about 19th century Britain and the world that the author was working in as it does about ancient Rome. Um, now often you'll hear the term revisionist history used as kind of a, a slur. It's almost a dirty word. Someone will say, oh, that's revisionist history. In other words, it's not true to the past as, as we understand it. But in a real sense, all history is revisionist history because we're all, our, our perspective is always changing. And th this is an example I, I use with, with students. Imagine a historian in 1982 writing a history of Russia in the 20th century. They're going to focus on the Russian Revolution, on Stalin and the purges, on defeating the Nazi invasion, on the Cold War, and so on. Right. Yeah. If you fast forward just 10 years, in 1992, that same historian is going to write a very different book because the Soviet Union has fallen. You know, they're going to focus on the weaknesses of the Soviet regime and so on. So just 10 years can make a huge difference in our perspective on the past. Huh, yeah, that's right. So in, you, you mentioned at least one of these words. I was listening for him, but in the past, you and I have talked a little bit, or you've introduced me to terms comprehensive and coherent as ways to understand how you read or how history is told. So tell me what you mean by those terms, comprehensive and coherent. Okay, well, by comprehensive, I mean the, the idea, and it, it's impossible, but the idea that, that history should be a complete recounting of the past. Okay, uh, by coherent, I mean that, the, that the, re the recounting of the past, the story that we tell about the past, makes sense. Okay, so think about the vast amount of information generated daily. Okay, any attempt to write a history of our time that used all of this information would be unreadable and useless. You know, I got up, I had eggs for breakfast, then I went to church, then I went home and I had a sandwich for lunch. Okay? Sounds like a lot of people's Instagram accounts. Um, so, um, so at one end of the spectrum, history that is just comprehensive, what we have is a chronicle. Right? One thing happened, then another thing happened, then another thing happened, with no, with no uh, meaning to it. On the other hand, at the other end of the spectrum, we have a story that is utterly coherent, okay, that makes sense. 
and, and a story that is utterly coherent would be fiction, right? So all historians balance the, the need for comprehension, that, that is, we want to make it as complete as we can with the need for coherence, telling something that makes sense, okay? So advancing an argument about the past, uh, trying to un uncover some meaning about what happened in the past. So all historians are walking this, walking this tightrope between being complete and telling a story that makes sense. All right, yeah, no, I appreciate that. That's, that was very helpful for me the first time I heard it, so I hope helpful for you guys. Um, let, let's zero in a little bit. So uh, when we start thinking about the Bible, though this isn't limited to the Bible, we're talking about ancient history, not as in history that happened a long time ago, but history that was written a long time ago. And, and so I'm curious if there are, what are the challenges of reading history that was written like thousands of years ago? Um, well, the, the, the biggest challenge is that historians who were working in the ancient world, so ancient historians as, in the sense that you said, right. um, they were doing something different than what historians do today. As I said, you know, our modern notion of history is really only about 200 years old. If we read historians who wrote in ancient times, they were doing something different. Um, they might, might write their story to justify uh, a, a ruler's actions or to illustrate the noble origins of their city or their country or the ignoble origins uh, of an enemy. Okay? And they wrote based on accounts of the past that they read as opposed to what his, modern historians use, that is his, records that were generated at the time we are studying, what we call primary sources. So the idea that an ancient, no ancient historian, as far as I know, went and looked through the archives of their city or their, their ruler. What they worked with were other people's accounts of what had happened. Okay. Um, and by our standards, they did things that historians today would never dream of doing. And I'm going to give you one example here. There was a, uh, an ancient Greek historian named Thucydides who wrote a history of, a, of an extended period of warfare between two Greek cities, Athens and Sparta. Now, Thucydides was himself an Athenian general. He was present and a participant in some of the events that he wrote about. And in his history, which is considered one of the greatest works of written uh, in ancient times, in his history, he says that. He says, I was present for some of these things, and I'm going to tell you what I saw with my own eyes and heard with my own ears. For other things, he says, I wasn't present. Okay? But, and, and for a lot of the things where he wasn't present, he actually gives speeches that people made. Now, of course, he wasn't there. There were no recordings of these speeches. What he says was, um, well, I have had these people say what I think they should have said what the situation called for. Okay, now no modern historian would do that without solid evidence of what these people said. So I think um, their, their standards of how they wrote about the past were different than ours. Right. So I, though it is tempting, I'd love to tell people what they should say. <laughs> that sounds like a good idea to me. <laughs> um, so I, if, I, if I'm hearing that part right, you're telling me to be careful not to read my modern sensibilities back into the text, right? A absolutely, yes, okay. absolutely. 
All right. So let's, uh, you sent me this. Do you want to put up that little cartoon? That, that Actually, Mark sent this to me, so I thought it was pretty funny, actually. Okay, everyone, Jesus speaking. Now, listen carefully. I don't want to end up with four different versions of this. Ha, ha, ha. Because we have four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and let me, let's just zero in on this. It'll be the last question I'll put you on the spot for. Um, as a historian, how do you understand the Gospels? We have these four accounts, but they're telling largely the same story, but they're not telling it in the same way. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, I would say that to have four eyewitness accounts, or nearly an eyewitness account in the case of Luke, written so close to the events that they recount is incredibly rare and valuable. Mm. Now, I'm not an ancient historian. I don't study this period in history. So uh, don't quote me on this. You know, don't bet the farm on this. Um, but I doubt there are any other parallels in ancient history where we have four eyewitness accounts or three eyewitness and one near eyewitness account of the same thing written within one person's lifetime. I just right. don't think that exists anywhere else. Um, and of course, many people look and they compare the, the differences between the accounts. Now, I would say that, that most of the differences in the gospel accounts are relatively minor. There were two people there. No, there were three people there. Was it Peter, John, and James, or was it just Peter and John? Um, you know, so most of the differences, I think, are relatively minor, or they recount, difference, uh, they recount events in slightly different order. And of course, you know, these people are, the gospel writers are writing, mm, you know, a number of decades after the life of Jesus. And now you think about, you know, your own life and when you get together with family and you remember things that happened in the past. Was that our first trip to Disneyland or the second one? Uh, what, what, you know, what summer did that take place? And, you know, these are events that we lived through and often, you know, we have different recollections of the very same things that we were all present for. The other thing I would say is that writers, these gospel writers, had different audiences and different purposes in mind. And inevitably, this guides them in what they chose to include and what to leave out. And I was thinking about this, you know, the Christmas story only appears in Matthew and Luke, right? Yeah. right? And I, I don't know if you're planning on talking about that at all, but I've always wondered why. You know, do, do, should we assume that Mark and John didn't know the circumstances of Jesus' birth? I don't think so. I think that Jesus' birth wasn't an integral part of the story that they wanted to tell. Um, and, I mean, all writers write with an audience in mind. Right. I, I write very differently for an audience of undergraduate students than I do for other historians. Um, so, um, and, and I would also say they were writing, as I said, decades after the events that they recount. So the earliest gospel, as I understand it, is Mark. Definitely. As far as scholars yeah. can tell, it was probably written about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, and, and as I said, you know, these, these are eyewitnesses, yes, but they're writing you know, decades after the events. And what should strike us, I think, is not the mostly trivial differences, but how much they actually agree on. Right. Um, you know, 
So, um, you know, I think, as I said, most of the differences, I think, are, are, are rather trivial. Um, and um, they, they agree on a great deal, even if they chose to present it in different ways, based on the purpose they were writing for and the audience they were writing for. Um, one other thing, or, uh, another thing I would say about this is that, you know, we can read the Gospels you know, if you sat down to read all four Gospels, you could do it in, what, a couple of hours, tops? I mean, they're, they're not that long, okay? And the events that they recount took place over a period of at least three years, right? So think of all the things that happened in the last three years of your life. Um, you know, there's an awful lot that they're leaving out. So, um, you know, and again, I'm just, this is just speculation on my part, but I have to imagine that Jesus said the same or similar things to different audiences at different times. And, you know, um, the, but it might be slightly different. And one gospel writer records one version, one records another. That doesn't mean that one is wrong and the other is right. It means that they are... Um, employing the, the data they have for the purpose that they, that they want. Um, and I think most importantly, I think we need to remember that the gospel writers were not writing history in our modern understanding of what history is and should be. Um, and reading the gospels in that light, I think, guides us down the wrong path. It focuses us on these relatively trivial differences rather than the, the ultimate purpose of the writers and the ultimate purpose of the stories that they tell us. Um, now, uh, I, I want to make a kind of an inexact parallel here. And you know, it doesn't work on all levels, but, but bear with me. William Shakespeare wrote a number of plays that dealt with history, both his own recent past and ancient history. Um, now, historians look at these plays today and, and understand that there are gross historical inaccuracies in these plays. You know, things couldn't possibly have happened the way Shakespeare described them as happening. He has people in the wrong places, he makes up speeches. Sure. Um, but I don't think anyone says, well, Shakespeare's plays then are utterly worthless and ought to be thrown out. Because they're not history. They're drama, they're literature. And even if they are historically inaccurate in some ways, they focus on what I think may be deep, even deeper truths about power and the human condition. Um, so they're great literature, even if they are flawed history. Now, I'm not meaning to suggest that the Gospels are flawed history. What I'm saying is that if we try to approach them in the light of modern history, we miss the point, uh, we miss a lot of their major point. Sure. Yeah, I appreciate that. So um, lots more, obviously, that we could say here. What I'm going to encourage you, like post-pandemic, is look up Mark, get him to buy you lunch, have further conversation about this stuff. Um, I, there's lots there, right? But I just, thank you. I'm going to, uh, can I gently dismiss you? Yeah. <laughs> there's no good way to do it. It's like ending a Zoom call. How do you do that? It's not easy. So thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. There's I've been very blessed with getting to know Mark and just helping, he's just helped me in, in a variety of ways, in this case, thinking about history uh, in better ways, I think. Um, 
In my household, by the way, we don't actually think about was that our first Disneyland trip or second Disneyland trip. <laughs> We've never been to Disneyland, so that's not a, an issue for us. That's clear, and my kids have a truncated childhood. Um, anyway, let me pick up a couple of the last threads he said. So let's zero in on the gospel stories. And this is where I need, like, this is where we'll land this. This is where you'll begin to see why this matters so much, okay? The gospel writers have a purpose in writing their Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as writers have a purpose. And their purpose is primarily for you to encounter Jesus. Okay, hear that. Their purpose is for you to encounter Jesus. We might say to know Jesus, but here's, I just wanna, we're gonna get into a little technical for a moment. Um, there's Greek knowing and there's Hebrew knowing. And let me just make a bit of, I don't want to play this, overplay this card, but let me give you a sense. If you were to look at the Greek word for knowing, ginosko, uh, we get words like gnostic, which you don't use very much, but we do use the word agnostic. That has Greek undertones, right? Like you don't really know what you think, then you're an agnostic, right? You don't know. Gnostic means you do know. It's the word um, ginosko. Uh, to know or to understand. But for the Greeks, for the ancient Greeks, knowing carried this sense of objectivity. They kind of were sort of detached from what they were knowing or what they were trying to know. And so you see, you can see this in, in the Bible, actually, where Paul visits Athens and he gets invited to the Areopagus or this group of philosophers that meet And there's a little kind of note that Luke puts in the text. It says, Athenians sat around all day and talked about the latest what? Latest ideas, latest thoughts. It's right there in Acts. That's kind of what, that's Greek knowing. You're kind of like sitting back going, hmm, yeah, I wonder how far the sun is from the, you know, from the earth. And and they're just contemplating ideas, okay? I'm overplaying it a little bit, but just stick with me. Hebrew, the word to know is yada. Okay? It also means to know, to understand, but it's much more, and this is key, it's much more subjective and relational. So in the old English translations, Adam knew Eve, and they had a baby. They didn't have an idea. All right? Do you see how different that is? The Greeks think they, they, they want to know and they have an idea. The Hebrews know and they have a baby. Okay? Um, Martin Buber is a Jewish philosopher, uh, his seminal work is called I and Thou. And when I was studying at Regent, uh, this book was, it came up so many times, I thought, I gotta read this book. I tried. I didn't get very far. It's complicated. I'm not that smart, I guess. Um, But I'm hopeful that the title gets close to what he's trying to get at. (laughs) So I got the title, I and Thou. And what he's talking about is in this relational knowing, that it's not an I-it relationship. I don't know things impersonally. I know things intimately. I and thou. The gospel writers want you to know Jesus, not just about Jesus. Okay, that's how we can maybe make those kind of distinctions of knowing. There is a way of knowing. You can read the gospels and just get information. And that's not their purpose. Right? If you look at John's gospel, right at the end of John's gospel, he, he lays it right out for you. John chapter 20, Jesus performed many, many other signs 
in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. This Mark talked about this. There's lots of stuff that's not recorded. But these are written so that you may believe, or depending on how you translate the Greek, so that you'll continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And that believing you might have life in his name. Like John wants you to believe, wants you to know Jesus as the Messiah, not just know about Jesus. And this now is where this becomes really key. Last week, and actually last couple weeks, we've been saying that uh, Jesus, uh, we're being invited uh, in this moment where you live, in the realities in which you're facing, to follow Jesus or follow the way of Jesus. We're called to that as Christians. Well, the way that we learn what the way of Jesus is, is by paying attention to these, these writers, paying attention to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? So that we can know Jesus, we can know his way, we can begin to think, well, what, what would it look like to live in this moment faithful to Je- faithfully to Jesus? Well, pay attention to Jesus, spend time with him in these texts. That's why they're given to us, so that we can know, intimately know the person of Jesus, right? And my sense is that these are, um, the gospel writers aren't that interested in chronology. Again, let's not read that into the text. They mix up their stories compared to each other, and they tell them in different orders. Again, that's not their, their primary purpose. They're trying to help you know Jesus, all right? Um, and the good news is we get four of them. It's like, um, the best analogy I've heard on this is if you, uh, I've only done this once, uh, buy a diamond, I bought one for my wife when I proposed, and the jeweler, this lady says, oh, do you want to look at the diamond through this like massive magnifying glass that she gave me? And I'm like, sure. Only time I've ever done it, and it was like super cool. Um, and you see the diamond, you can see it from different angles, the way it's cut, and it just reveals different qualities as you look at the diamond from multiple angles. And we have four gospel stories that introduce us to the person of Jesus from four slightly different angles. So not only can we know him, but we can know him well. That's the invitation of these writings. So you can know Jesus well. Now, I do need to quickly, I know we're getting on in time. I need to just... Um, I'm going to invite a couple readers up in a moment. There are two sort of broad struggles that people have. Mark's alluded to them when you come to these writings because the Gospels tell generally the same story, but specifically they differ, okay? And sometimes they'll tell completely different details. And you're like, oh, what? how do I understand that? And we're going to look at that. And sometimes they place the same story in a completely different context. And you're like, what? So... Here's where um, some uh, biblical folks will invite you to say they read horizontally, and by that mean, okay, Mark tells the story, but how does Matthew tell the same story? Or how does Luke tell the same story? You're reading horizontally across the Gospels. And the other is read vertically. So what context does Luke tell this story in? Look at the chapter before, look at the chapter after. Let me illustrate it quickly. So I'm going to invite my readers up. We're going to look at two stories quickly. You'll see what I mean, and then we'll wrap this up, okay? So um, we're going to read the baptism story. Who, Mar, uh, who's reading that? Matt and Lynn. Come on up. Um, 
they're going to read two versions of the same story. I don't know. You guys can duke it out who reads first. Um, go ahead. Just jump in. So this is the baptism story, one version from Matthew, one version from Mark. Go ahead, please. Okay, so I'm reading from Matthew uh, 3, 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I'm reading the baptism story from Mark 1, 9 to 11. At the time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. It's great. So uh, if you guys put up the slide where I lay those two alongside each other, you can see these are the two stories, and I've highlighted for you. Hopefully that highlight comes up well enough on your, on your screen. You can see that Matthew has added a detail, right? This particular part where John and Jesus have this conversation about righteousness. And Jesus says, let it be so now. It is proper to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, so Matthew and, and Mark's read, or telling of the story is a little different. And you could say, well, man, Mark got it wrong or he forgot something. Or, but you're focusing on the wrong thing. If you're, that's, that's the thing Mark, uh, Mark, the historian Mark, is inviting us to not do. Okay? Better to do is to say, what is Matthew, like as you read horizontally and lay these texts beside each other, you say, what is Matthew trying to emphasize? Well, Jesus' righteousness. That Jesus actually is the righteous one. And if you even pull it back a little further and know that part of Matthew's emphasis is to write to a predominantly at the time Jewish audience, and he wants to be clear that the Jesus you're encountering here is the Messiah, the righteous one, you begin to go, oh, okay, that's why he's putting this detail in. Jesus is fulfilling, has fulfilled all righteousness because Jesus is the Messiah, right? And so by laying, by reading horizontally and laying the texts alongside each other, it's not to look at their perceived differences as a problem, but their perceived differences to highlight what is their emphasis? What are they trying to highlight about who Jesus is? Okay, lots more I could say about it, but let's move on to the second example. So this is now reading a story in context. So I forget who's reading here. I think Murray and... and uh, Bea. Okay, great. So you're going to read um, this very famous uh, story where uh, Jesus explains the greatest commandments. But they are in, well, I'll just let you hear the two stories from Mark and from Luke. So I'm reading the story of the greatest commandment from Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? 
The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. I'm reading the greatest commandment from the Gospel of Luke. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Okay, that's great. Thank you. So uh, as you lay these alongside each other, you can see all kinds of, like the horizontal piece, you'll see some interesting differences. What I'm actually more concerned in this example is they place the same teaching of Jesus in a completely different context, these two writers. So it's not, you'd have to read the whole chapter in, in Mark, and Matthew does the same thing. That teaching shows up in the last week of Jesus' life where he's having endless arguments with the religious leaders in the temple prior to his crucifixion. And there's this the back and forth debate going on, and this shows up in that debate. Luke's telling of the same teaching. Now, it could be that Jesus taught it multiple times, quite likely, possible. Or Mark, or Luke just has something else in mind. He connects this teaching of Jesus, places it in a completely different portion of his life, and connects it to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Luke is the only one who tells that, that parable. So now he's taking the same teaching, putting it in a different context, and adding a parable to it. And you're like, what is Luke doing here? And as you sort of unpack that a little bit, you realize part of Luke's message that he wants us to understand that Jesus is saying is that our love for God and our love for neighbor are intricately linked. These aren't separate commands, actually. They're the way that we, like an expression of our love for God is how we love our neighbor. And how we love our neighbor is connected to how we love God. Like Luke, make, he does some amazing things here, the way he actually, if you really get into that text, it's, it's, it's stunning. Now, here's what I want you to just walk away with for, with this piece. So prior to working here at Varsity, I worked at Alberta Bible College for six years. And one of the real privileges, and I say that as a privilege, I had was teaching a course on the Gospels every year to first-year students. And so every summer, I would train myself to read one or two more books, do some, I wanted to keep that class, I taught it every year, so I taught it for six years. And I tried to read more and keep the class fresh and add new components, all of that, 
All that to say is of the Bible, what I've studied, I have probably studied this section of Scripture more than any other. I'm telling you, I am more convinced than I've ever been that these gospel writers are reliable witnesses and they are skillful writers. They knew what they were doing. They're not making random mistakes. They're arranging the material in particular ways because they want you to know Jesus, not just know about him. Okay, I am convinced, absolutely convinced these are reliable accounts. And so this is now where it lands where you live. All right, it is a confusing time. We've talked about that. You're experiencing that. And, you know, in broad strokes, what I would say is we have got to keep our eyes on Jesus. If we want to figure out how to live in this moment, And what does faithfulness to Jesus look like? What is it to follow the way of Jesus when everybody around me is like disagreeing with each other and saying like asinine things to each other on the internet or sometimes even in person? How do we follow the way of Jesus in this moment? Well, pay attention to Jesus. Read these these gospel accounts. Go back to them. And that's really the practice that we've been in this year of biblical literacy is to read scripture. And if you're linked into that plan, you're reading these passages right now, if you're not linked into that plan, just start reading one of the gospels. But read not just for head information, not just for ideas. Read to encounter the person of Jesus. This is what we need. This is what I need. The Bible is a unified book. These gospel accounts are reliable accounts that point us to Jesus. Friends, we need Jesus. All right, so I'm going to leave that with you. I should make note, you can't probably, if you're online, you can't see this. One day you'll be back in this room and you can, but uh, we were donated this week a beautiful, it's, I'm pointing because it's there, but it's a beautiful book that we've put out on the um, communion table uh, that is the four Gospels, uh, the text of the four Gospels, interspersed with artwork from Fujimura, who's a Christian painter dude. Um, And um, really what I want to say about this book, and I just love it, and we're going to put it on display, is it illustrates what it holds is both the truth of God and the beauty of God, side by side, right? And that's what these gospel writers invite you to, to encounter Jesus who is both true and beautiful and invites you into relationships. Let me pray, and then I'm going to invite the band to come. We're going to sing a song uh, just to kind of wrap that, that whole piece up. I know there's lots going on. This sounded maybe a bit more like a teaching or lecture than you wished, but um, I'm very grateful, Mark, for your insights. Uh, been tremendously helpful to me. Um, let's pray. God, thank you that you have given us these reliable accounts of who Jesus is and what Jesus did Thank you that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each in their own way, are deeply skillful editors, writers, presenters. And as we sit with these texts, as we're invited in, God, give us the grace. Give us your Holy Spirit 
so that we don't just fill our minds with facts, but you actually invite us into relationship. Jesus, may your written word lead us to you, the living word. Because in this moment, we need you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you thanks. Amen.